0: In our series on joyful souls, we're looking this morning at what you might think is an odd topic, and that is the joy of righteous anger. The first thing I would say, what you have there in your bulletin outline, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Unfortunately, uh, though this type of anger is even possible among sinners like us, we do not often exhibit this kind of anger. Mostly, we display sinful anger in which we, in our words, lose our temper, displayed in cursing, raising the voice, throwing things, brawling, any number of other unrestrained behavioral traits which are full of selfish pride and sin. That's us when we get angry. James says it this way, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. James 1 verse 20. Well, yeah, because man's anger is usually this sinful anger that I'm talking about. But we forget or ignore Paul's exhortation, which is this. In your anger, do not sin. Did I read that right, Paul? In your anger, do not sin. He goes on, do not let the sun go down on your anger while you're still still angry, Ephesians 4.26. So here the emphasis is on a protracted anger that is not resolved, that instead is nursed and promoted and justified. And let me tell you that if you do that with anger, if you're angry towards somebody and you nurse it and you prolong it and you don't follow the biblical exhortation of settling the matter before the sun sets. Guess what that does to you? You become a bitter person. What is bitterness? It's anger going underground. That's what it is. It's going into your soul. And it will affect you and infect you and you won't be able to look at life except through the eyes of anger. I was watching the news this morning and... there is a guy in Manhattan that has developed a website called theapologyline.com. The Apology Line. And you, you dial up, and, and they did it right there on, on the news, to, because it was a short, you know, like you get a f- short phone message, and you're supposed to leave a message. And he says right in it, you're not apologizing to men or to God. But, and he goes on to say, but if you leave your apology, it'll make you feel better. So people are doing this kind of self-catharsis, cleansing. They call in, talk to a machine. Doesn't that sound like our society? And they apologize for whatever is on their heart or on their mind without having to face the person that they sinned against and without having to talk to you-know-who, to God. Do you know that an apology is not the same as asking for forgiveness from somebody? We're to ask for forgiveness when we sin against somebody, not just say, oh, I'm sorry. God wants us to deal quickly with anything like this that would destroy our relationship with one another and with Him. But the point now is this. In your anger, do not sin, which means that there is an anger, there is an anger that is not sin. Okay, okay. Obvious question, what kind of anger would that be? Answer, the kind of anger that God exhibits. Okay, second question, what anger does God exhibit? Well, it's a righteous anger. You say, Pastor, you're just digging the hole deeper. You're not helping us understand. Hang in there. A righteous anger is anger that is justified. It is anger... Now, get this distinction. It's anger because of sin, not anger issuing from sin. Let that, just, I'll just let that sink in a little bit. It's because of sin, but it doesn't issue from sin. It's anger when wrong is substituted for right, anger when there's no justice in the land, anger when evil prevails and good is squelched, Anger when the profane is flaunted and the holy is repressed. Anger when the helpless, the infirm, the weak are taken advantage of by the influential, the wealthy, and the strong. The example of this is when Jesus went into the temple with a whip. We call it the cleansing of the temple. Why? Because merchants were peddling their wares in in the temple courtyard and it had become like the Saturday bazaar. You know, and and everybody was buying uh, and selling goods and so forth. And he says, you have taken God's house, which is a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And so he beat them with the whip and he overturned the money changers. You you remember that whole account. That's a display of righteous anger. Something holy was being profaned. And it was disruptive and blasphemous of God. Now, where would this kind of anger come from? It comes from the character of God. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. Now listen to this. All His ways are just. Not some other ways. Not partly just. All of His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is He. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. Boy, I'll tell you, in, in two verses there, we have a character description of God that should make most people who are always justifying sin recoil a little bit. All His ways are just. Let me read again. They made their hearts as hard as flint. Speaking of Israel. They would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Zechariah 7 verse 12. It's a privilege to receive God's word. Did you know that? There's many nations still today, smaller nations and so on, that don't have one copy of the Bible in their presence, let alone the many copies that you have on your library shelf or at home. In the Exodus, God sent Moses his prophet to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, where they had been in servitude for four centuries. To deliver them, he brought great judgment on the Egyptians and did stupendous miracles. The crossing of the Red Sea on dry ground. A cloud by day to protect them from the desert sun. A pillar of fire at night to provide heat and light. By the way, deserts get very cold at night. Water from the rock to quench their thirst. Manna from heaven for daily food. Quail when they were complaining that they had no meat. Miracle after miracle. Yet when they finally arrived at the doorway of Canaan, they refused to cross over Jordan and take possession for fear of the people they saw in that land. Worse, they rebelled against Moses. They tried to elect another leader and returned to Egypt. And so God turned them back into the desert till that whole generation died off. Wow. Sounds like God was angry. Writer of Hebrews words it this way. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert, to whom God swore that they would never enter His rest? if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. They had had a, they had had a history record of miracle after miracle where God had provided for them. They get up to the gateway of the promised land and they see some extra t- tall people walking around in there. They look at the fortified cities, that is walled cities like Jericho, and they say, wow, we can't go in there. Those guys are big. And look at those walled cities. How do we get over those walls? We're just a bunch of shepherds. We're just a bunch of herdsmen. And God's anger burned over a people that He had blessed with deliverance and protection and sustenance who were not thankful and did not trust Him for this last endeavor. When Abraham argued with God over the impending destruction of Sodom, he drew upon his knowledge of the character of God. And this is what he said, Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18, verse 25. Well, the judge of all the earth did do right. What he was arguing for, Abraham, he was pleading for righteous Lot, his nephew, who lived in Sodom without being party to their immorality. And God did spare Lot, and his family brought him out of that city before judgment was initiated. Take note then that the things... We have been learning about the second coming of Christ, which result in terrible upheavals in the heaven, the seas, the earth, and so on, are all reflections of God's righteous anger. You say, well, you didn't give me any verses on that. Well, hang in there. I'm going to give them to you right now. The catastrophes that we have been studying are all produced out of the foundation of The floor work of God's righteous anger. Jeremiah writes, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. Yeah, you don't want to get God angry because then the earth trembles. Or again from the book of Judges. O Lord, when you went out from Seir. Seir is a mountain in um, the land of Edom. When you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Judges 5, verse 4 and 5. And then Job asked the question, How can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? That's a good question. He goes on. He moves mountains without their knowing it. And overturns them in his anger. He shakes the Earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Job 9, verse two through eight. Now that's not just poetry. That's Job telling us what actually occurs when God convulses in the heavens and on the earth. The psalmist writes, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame, those who boast in idols. Worship him, all you gods. Psalm 97. The first seven verses. So you see how the psalmist understood these various things. And he he talks repeatedly about the righteousness of God. That's where all this is coming from. Back it tells us he stood and shook the earth, he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, the age old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning, lightning of your flashing spears. He's talking about the lightning bolts. Do you have your... Um... In Arkansas, and Don and I were in school down there, if you ever seen lightning flash so fast while you're out driving and you got your wipers on and your wipers are going as fast, but the lightning is flashing so flash that the, the uh, wipers appear to stop. In Arkansas, it's that fast. It's like a strobe light. And that's what he's talking about here. The sun and the moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows at the lightnings of your flashing spears so fast, so rapid that the things in the sky look like they're standing still in wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations you gave them a good shellacan You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. I heard and my heart, pounded, my lips quivered, that the sound decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Habakkuk 3, verse 6 and following. that's, That's one of God's people trembling. If God's people who know God and are safe in God because of Christ, if they tremble when God rouses His in anger, what will it be like in the day of judgment? So then, brethren, it is God's righteous anger that is the foundation for the catastrophes that Jesus predicted for the end times. Now secondly, and this may shock you, God's righteous anger is directed firstly towards his people who know better. Who know better. When King Jehoshaphat appointed judges in Judah, this is what he told the judges. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, no partiality. No bribery. You're going to get a fair sentence. It doesn't matter who you are. Impartiality. And you can't buy them off. There'll be no under the table deal. Second Chronicles 19 verse 7. Now, likely it has not escaped you this morning in the scriptures that we have read that many of them told of God's righteous anger being poured out upon God's own people, Israel. Have you ever scratched your head about that? I've often said that to God. Lord, these are your people. Hello, if you're treating your people this way. What's coming for those that aren't? Most horrendous of all, I think, being totally disenfranchised by God, that that whole Egyptian generation was totally disenfranchised by God as they were turned back into the wilderness where they died of natural causes in the ensuing 40 years. God just said, okay. Okay. It says he was angry with them for 40 years. Even Moses, get this, even Moses and Aaron were banned from the promised land. God told Moses to speak to the rock, which would then supply Israel with water enough to satiate their first thirst in the desert. But instead he struck it twice with his rod. And we read, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because, listen to the reason now, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. Numbers 20, verse 12. Whoa. Reflecting on this in later years, When the new generation was about to cross over into Jordan, Moses told them, The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. Deuteronomy 4, verse 21. He's about ready to die. So he's talking to the new generation, and he's saying to them, I'm not going with you guys. And here's why. So now what about this? I mean, um, we pretty well believe that Israel got what it deserved. Their, their whole journey through the desert from the Red Sea to the gateway of Canaan is summarized in God's indictment, which is this. Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, who were dis- but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. We're not told what the ten times are, but that's a study in itself. You can go back and figure out what ten times they tested the Lord in the wilderness. Not one of them, God continues, will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Numbers 14, verse 22 and 23. Now there were two exceptions, you know them. Caleb and Joshua, that's because they didn't participate in the rebellion to not enter the land of Canaan. They were not scared to death. They were saying things like, let's go guys, we can do this. The Lord will be with us. And so they and their families were allowed to go. But they were the only two from that generation that came out of Egypt. You think about that. All that God did to bring them out, sending Moses down there, all the plagues, all of that. And they all, that whole generation, perished in the wilderness. It was hundreds of thousands of people, into the millions. Okay, they got what they deserve. But what about Moses and Aaron? These two had faithfully led the Israelites from bondage to freedom, had prayed and interceded for the Israelites at those times when God would have wiped them out for their idolatry or for their complaining. Uh, part of those ten times when they tested the Lord. And yet they are not permitted to enter the promised land. The psalmist actually made a song about it. A worship song. For they, the Israelites, rebelled against the Spirit of God and rash words came from Moses' lips. Psalm 106, verse 23. Rash words from Moses' lips. What's that? That's sinful anger. That's what we do. That's the indicative of us. When we become frustrated or outraged, boy, we just let it fly. And he let it fly. And God said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. God's evaluation, however, goes a bit deeper. Here it is. Because you did not trust in me enough, To honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Did not trust me enough. It was a faith issue. Scripture says without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Hebrews 11 verse 6. And what do we read as the reason why the Egyptian generation was not permitted to enter the promised land? So we read that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3 verse 19. Disbelief when God speaks is like calling him a liar. When God's people sin against God, He judges with impartiality. And I would say this, that God's judgment for sin in His people is not unusual. Not unusual. When Zechariah the priest prayed for a child for his barren wife, Elizabeth, God sent Gabriel to inform him that they would have a son together even in their old age. But Zechariah questioned, Zechariah doubted that such could happen? In short, he didn't believe. And we read, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. Now he's a priest. Zechariah is a priest. He's a man of the cloth. He's the holy man. You will not be able to speak during this whole time of the pregnancy of your wife because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Luke 1 verse 20. A preacher with no voice? That's, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. I was kind of worried about me this morning too because I've had, I've had a week. <clears throat> Contrast that to the same angel announcing to Mary that she, a virgin, would nonetheless carry the Christ child. When she visited Elizabeth, yeah, the same Elizabeth that is Zechariah's wife, now in her sixth month of pregnancy, when Mary visited them, Elizabeth turned to Mary and said, Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Luke 1 verse 45. Zechariah, the preacher, he doesn't believe. Mary, a little young girl, probably 15, 16 years old, not married, has no husband, yet she's going to conceive by way of the Holy Spirit. She believes in that miracle that's going to take place. So God judges Zechariah accordingly. When Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit by pretending to put all of the money in the offering plate, from the sale of their land, while in reality holding back a large sum for themselves. And by the way, that was not the sin. The sin was the lie. As you read the text, Peter says, you know, the money was yours to do, do with what you wanted to do. Just don't do this. Don't put in a portion and then pretend to everybody looking like it was all that you got for the sale of the property. What happened? God struck them both dead, one at a time. They were carried out. This is in the church in Jerusalem. Malachi addressed God's people as thieves. Saying ever since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. But you ask how are we to return? Answer, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Answer, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing of heaven that you will not be able to contain it I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit says the Lord Almighty then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be the delightful land says the Lord Almighty Malachi 3 verse 7 through 12 So you see we give God plenty cause plenty of cause for judging us, even as His people. But with that said, there is a distinction between the discipline of God upon His people and His judgment upon the unbelieving. You have in your bulletin this insert, and I don't know if Jared is able to put this up on our, on our uh, streaming, but if so, this is good. I'm not going to take time to go through this. But on the one column, it's a column on God disciplining His people. We call it chastening. If you want another word for it, God knows how to spank us as His people when we step out of line to bring us back into line and trusting Him. And then on the right-hand column, God's judgment of the unbeliever. And there's a radical difference between getting a spanking and getting killed. Getting disciplined so you come back in a true relationship with God and being condemned to the everlasting fires. But take that home. Read that on your own. Peter puts it this way. It's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? First Peter 4, verse 17. There's a contrast here that we need to keep in mind. So when we talk about righteous anger, it's first displayed against God's people who know better. The reason we know better, we've been taught better. And we've had God's presence in our life and we've witnessed his intercessions and interventions in our lives. And I dare say some of us have seen miracles maybe not the kind that were in Egypt, but we've seen God answer prayers that uh, humanly possible would, would be impossible. And so when God blesses us like that and then we turn our back on Him or we do, that, we do that which is sinful or we ignore His Word, He knows how to spank us to get us back in line. I was always hurtful when my dad spanked me as a child, and mother spanked us, <clears throat> excuse me, mother spanked us far more than dad ever did because he's out working and she had the role of the house and the care of the children and so forth. And we got mad and angry at the time and did a lot of bawling and crying and complaining. But as I look back, I say, Thank you, mom and dad. Because Taught us, it brought us back to the righteous way. When I thought not all the spankings were justified because there was misunderstandings at time, but I figured there was enough that I got away with <laughs> that I didn't get a spanking for <laughs> that it was thoroughly justified, and God God was just taking care of some some uh, slagged uh, <laughs> results that, of the past. So I deserved every whop I got, and I'm thankful. Uh, for that discipline in our lives, it's something we don't have number three the lord's anger then is also against those who have rejected the gospel. It begins with the house of God, and it's it's like God is saying, "Hello, world, look what I do to my own people. You think you're going to get away with it? I spank them when they sin i Bring them back into a right relationship to me. But you keep raising your fist in my face. You keep cursing me. You keep rebelling against the truth that I give through my prophets, through the preachers, through the scriptures. You think you're going to escape? We've been talking of late about the natural catastrophes, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, disruptions in the heavenly body, sun, moon, stars. But I have to say, I have to say that even after all of that, there is in the rebellious heart the notion that somehow, some way, it will escape such judgments. The thought comes there just has to be some place on earth, some hidden safe haven. That will permit the discerning to weather the coming storm. That's the way people of the world think. Ain't gonna happen to me. Might happen to you because you're stupid. But it ain't gonna happen to me. I came across a TV show this week as I was flipping through the channels. I do that every once in a while. I get disgusted with what you know. Flip through. I came across a show called. Preppers. Anyone ever know about that show? Preppers. P-R-E-P-P-E-R-S. The whole program had to do with how people can prepare, that's where they get their name, how they can prepare for the coming economic collapse of our society and survive the chaos, the riots, the looting, the crime, the danger of people gone mad to survive when they have no money to purchase the necessities of life. Food, fuel, clothing, and so on. And so, they hit the streets to rob and steal and even kill to get what they need. That's what they're saying is coming. You know, I think there's truth in that. Let me ask you, if that does materialize, Would you like to be William Devane? You know who I'm talking about? The actor on TV who talks about, I buy gold as often as I can. And then he ends his commercial by saying, what's in your safe? I wouldn't want to be him when riot broke out. He's telling the world, come to my house. I have a safe. And there's something in there that's of value. Let me ask this, what happens when there's no food to buy and no food to steal? What happens when the human body is fighting all kinds of ailments and diseases? And what happens when demand exceeds supply? God has control not only of the inanimate objects of creation like asteroids, comets, stars, and so on, but also over living organisms and living pests that affect our food supply and our health. Listen, God's promise to the Exodus Israelites. Here's what He said. This is His promise. If you pay attention to these laws, the laws He had just given them, and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you as He swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb. The crops of your land, your grain, your new wine, the oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks in the land that He swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict you inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt but he will inflict them on those who hate you now that's his promise Deuteronomy 7 verse 12 through 15 wow what a great promise all you have to do is love me all you have to do is obey my laws by the way if you look in the Leviticus and you read some of those laws it talks about washing their hands when they after they had used the facilities we might say no nation did that They didn't know about germs and bugs and so on. Israel didn't know about germs and bugs and so on. They just had the laws that God gave them. If they followed the laws, he protected them hygienically from these kinds of diseases that happen to people in third world countries who are still living in what we call the Stone Age. Okay, that's his promise. All you got to do is obey my laws. Everything will be great. But consider now his warning if they disobey. The Lord will inflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, confusion of mind. Day after day you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. Wow. You'll build a house, but you'll not get to live in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you don't get to eat any of it. The people that you do not know will eat eat what your land and labor have produced. And you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink of the vine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. In other words, the trees will abort the fruit. It'll rot. Swarms of locusts will take over your trees and the crops of your land. The aliens who live among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. Deuteronomy 28, verse 27 and following said to God's people, Blessing for obedience and loving me, but if you disobey, here's what's going to happen. You mean God can't control things like that? Diseases? Pests? We read earlier from Habakkuk 3, verse 5. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Relative of the family tipped me off to what's going on in Egypt. So I went searching. Maybe you've heard about this. March 4th, that's this month, just a week or so ago, March 4th, Mac Peckham wrote an article for Time Magazine entitled, Locust Swarms Descend on Egypt Like Biblical Plague. Here's what he wrote. What might you do if a churning black cloud rising over the horizon turned out to be Tens of millions of locusts headed straight for you. Folks in Giza, Egypt, home of the famous pyramids, are presently grappling with just such a plague, having to fend off upwards of 30 million locusts, according to official estimates. The insects arrived this weekend, coincidentally just a few weeks before the Jewish Passover, which is March 25th through April 2nd. It sounds like this modern day version of the locust plague is taking its toll, attacking farms in the area, doing considerable damage to local agriculture. The upside? It's not clear there is one. Although locusts are considered edible in parts of the Middle East, so there's plenty of protein for the adventurous. Even better, local meteorologists predict strong winds on the way with Egypt's agricultural minister has said he hopes he'll just blow the bugs out of his country altogether. Guess where he hopes (coughs) that the bugs would be blown to? to Israel. <laughs> nice guy. <laughs> end of the uh, end of the quote. On June 7th, 2012, last year, millions of locusts descended on California's Sacramento Valley, eating all of the vegetation in sight. They did a count, and this is how they determine how bad of an infestation. Usual normal of locusts, 50 to 60 locusts per square yard. Okay? sit Derek count? About 50, 60. In this infestation, 5,000 per square yard. They showed kids, I went online and watched some of the um, YouTube videos, they showed kids with butterfly nets just running along the ground, just scraping the grass, running with the butterfly net dangling on the ground, (laughs) scooping up Balls and balls of locusts, Sacramento. Do we know that it is California, along with Florida, that feeds our country with so much of its vegetables and fruits? You know, God can bring a nation to its knees like that. He has this control. Add to this news the Center for Disease Control and Prevention CDC found that most cases of the stomach virus reported in the U.S. during the last four months of 2012, this is very recent now, the last four months of 2012 were attributed to a new strain of norovirus called G24 Sydney. The new strain has been making people sick in Japan, Canada, Western Europe, and other parts of the world. Doctors have called this strain the Ferrari of viruses for the speed at which it is spreading among people. The CDC warns that this type of norovirus has been linked with increased rates of hospitalizations and deaths during its outbreaks. It is especially serious for the elderly and young children. The CDC cautions that the norovirus is very easily transmitted We can infect, and can infect anyone. You can catch it from an infected person, contaminated food, water, food or water, or by touching con- contaminated surfaces. Norovirus can live almost any on any surface for up to twelve days. And have you had that stomach flu in uh, January, February, or in the last four months of last year? These things don't just happen. New Mexico health officials recently confirmed the first human case of bubonic plague. Oh. Previously known as the Black Death to surface in the United States in 2011. 58-year-old man. Bubonic plague tends to create panic in areas where it appears, and that's understandable given that it's best known for having wiped out more than a third of the medieval population of Europe. Today, some 1,000 to 3,000 cases arise globally every year on the rise. Countries such as Australia and Europe are plague-free, but regions in Africa, Asia, and the Americas are, an experience, are experiencing an increase. We who have had the gospel for years What about all this? It's a result of God's righteous anger. He's dealing with the sin of the cultures, calling us back to Him. Now, then, lastly, is there any mitigation of judgment? That's a good question. Is judgment just inevitable? Can't do anything about it. It's coming. It's going to get us. There's a sense in which that's true. But let me suggest the first point, which is this. If we repent before God's righteous anger is initiated, yeah, then there's mitigation. If we repent before. Let me read it for you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the evil man give up his evil thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. there is hope only before death and destruction hit because as the psalmist said, for the grave cannot praise you, death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Isaiah 38, verse 18. For the individual, there is hope and salvation if we repent before the disaster hits. It's kind of anticlimactic. It's certainly full of insincerity that once you're under judgment, say, Oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. How many times I've said that to my dad when he was ready to spank me. when he was ready to spank me and I knew I had worn out his patience. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. L- you little liar. <laughs> That's what I was. I'm just a little liar. I was like Esau, weeping and crying over the loss of the birthright, not over the sin that caused the loss of the birthright. So if we repent before the judgment comes, yeah, God is. Merciful to us, He will abundantly pardon. But what if we're part of Babylon, and judgment hits of Babylon? And by that, I think I'm referring to the world view that's built on the philosophy of Ahab and Jezebel of Babylon. The only help offered is this. I'm reading scripture. Flee from Babylon. Run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall, will be broken, wail over her, get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon. I'm still reading scripture. But she cannot be healed. Let us leave her. And each one go to his own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the clouds. Jeremiah 51, verses 6 through 9. What's God saying there? God's saying, I've had it up to here with the philosophy of Babylon that permeates the earth. If you read the Revelation, that's why Babylon is talked about in the Revelation as bearing the brunt of God's judgment because it's representative of our societies as they are today. Godless Profane, ignorant, unholy, full of wickedness and sin. All with the same kind of mentality of the days of Noah. And that's the third point. No unbeliever survives God's righteous anger. No one survives. Remember Jesus' prediction, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Luke 17, verse 26. Any unbeliever survive the Noah flood? Any unbeliever? I know Noah and his family, but any unbeliever survive the Noah flood? Let me read it for you. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air. Of course, they wouldn't have a place to light, right? Eventually, they'd have to come down into the water. They can't stay in flight forever. Men and animals, the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Genesis 7, verse 23. The Bible again says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 7. It's a nice way of saying, the writer is saying, he believed God and and no of any kind of flood like that. There, There was no experience of that. But he built the ark anyway. It took him uh, over a hundred years to build it. While God set the rainbow in the sky as a sign to testify that he would never again destroy the earth by flood, Peter writes of the terror coming in our day. And here's what he writes. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Ah, new medium here. By fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Answer, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Yeah, amen. Second Peter 3, verse 10 through 14. But even here, even here, listen, listen to me now. Destruction is not the end of, end. Some people think, okay, so I'm going to be destroyed and that will be the end. Mm -hmm. No. No. That's just the demise of the material. Let me read it for you. Again, the scriptures. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and He will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Hebrews 9, 27, 28. Are you waiting for Him? Or are you resisting Him? There will be no place to hide. And death is not annihilation. It's not the end end. There's a day of judgment to follow. And then the end comes. And you don't want to face what the Bible calls the second death. Our Lord, please forgive us for being so flippant with regard to things like judgment. And so um, dismissive of, of what we've learned today concerning righteous anger. Righteous anger. People don't even know today how to be anger, angry in a righteous way. All they know is sinful anger. And if anyone dares to speak up against injustice, immorality, all of those kind of things that anger you, what happens? Society rises and belittles them for daring to bring it up. It's a sign of how much wickedness has taken over our thought processes. The Bible talks about a day coming when men will call good evil and evil good. And We're there. But the God of all the earth always does what's right and just. And His anger is based upon that character trait. He cannot deny Himself. We are thankful for a loving God that granted to us a savior for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life but the next verses go on to say that if we ignore the son then the wrath of God remains on us so he's not all just lovey-dovey there's a just side to God and in his justice he must He must punish that which is evil. He must bring about justice in the land that has escaped us because of the corruption of men. But one day justice will return. Now, Lord, I'm praying for my people here. I'm praying for the TV audience. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to hearts this morning, help them to see. The God who controls the shaking of the earth, the the waves on the sea, and so forth, also controls the diseases, the pests, all of those things. These are precursors to the big day when fire from heaven will destroy the things in heaven and on earth. We'll judge all those who try to hide but cannot. I pray that you will bring us to our knees in repentance. If we're believers, may we understand this morning that judgment begins with the house of God. That God deals with us impartially. Thank you, dear Jesus. You took the punishment for our sin. And because of that, we don't experience the wrath of God, the burning hell to come. But you do spank us. You do bring, our, bring trouble into our lives because of our disobedience and our unfaithfulness. Then for any here and in our listening audience that doesn't know Christ, this is the king that's coming. This is the king of whom the writer of Revelation said they hid their faces from him. They didn't want to look upon the face of the Lamb of God that comes. He's so fierce in his anger. So holy, so righteous. Forgive us, Lord, for our flippancy. Forgive us for our casualness in our Christianity. Bring us back, Lord. Bring us close to you. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.